Welcome to Come Along for the Ride, where we make the world a better place for horses. I'm your host, Tracy Malone. I was born on the country of the Wiradjuri people, and this podcast is brought to you from my home in the Sanford Valley, in the northwest of Brisbane, Australia. I'd like to acknowledge the Turrbal and Yuggera people, the traditional custodians of this land on which this podcast is made, and where my family and horses live and gather. I'd like to recognise their connection to land, water, community and our sacred animals. I am grateful to Elders, past, present and emerging, for keeping this sacred land here in Sanford safe and protected throughout many tens of thousands of years. I have great pride to live on country where the oldest known human beings tended to this land. I'm also grateful that you have taken the time to choose this podcast at this very moment. Thank you for being a part of the global change we are making to the welfare and training of horses. If you'd like to support the podcast and all the work that I do, then you can. Just head on over to patreon.com slash come along for the ride podcast and sign up. From as little as a cup of coffee a month, you can help me keep this podcast going. There are many tiers that you can choose from, and if everyone who listens gave only $5 a month, it would make a massive positive difference to me. There's a tier in there for small business subscription, just like the one Peter Papp took up from Peter and the Herd. This is the one where your business gets a mention each podcast. Peter works with equine behaviour and trauma recovery and equine communication, human and horse relationship building. Peter has actually had communication with my mare Gypsy, who's the one you see in the podcast picture with me, and he was spot on about everything, so I can highly recommend his work personally. You'll find the links to Peter's work in the show notes. Hi everyone, I'd first like to take a moment to thank everyone who responded to my last podcast episode. I honestly thought it may well be time to turn to something new and uh, give this one up and I was very pleasantly surprised to see the response. Thus, I am still here and will be coming to you weekly once again. And uh, don't stop the emails and messages coming through. I'm taking notes on everything, on ways that I can serve you better and the things that you really want and need for me to do. So please keep them coming through. It's really important to me that I know what it is that you want and need. So I would really appreciate it as well if you could go to patreon.com, come along for the ride podcast and become a supporter like these amazing people did. Sign of Horses, Rachel Beddingfield from Connection Training, Louise Arich, I think that's how you say it, I'm so sorry, but your sister is also an amazing supporter, Liz Arich, E-H-R-I-C-H, I don't know how to say it, my Australian-ness can't get around that one, I'm sorry, Lauren Arke, Jessica Vola, Fiona Wagstaff, Alyssa Mansfield, Edwin Skellen, Belinda Dawes and Belinda Ann and then Peter Papp from our small business. So thank you so much to all of your massive shout out to each and every one of you who um, took the time to go to Patreon and sign up as a subscriber. It means the world to me. And it can be, like I said, you know, $2 a month if everyone does that. It makes a massive change and helps support this podcast to keep coming to you every week. This week's episode was recorded in October last year, October 2019, and it was a part of Anna Blake's Australian tour, 
where I hosted Anna here in southeast Queensland and I'd like to do a lot more of this with a lot more trainers so it's something I'm looking at doing again once restrictions ease. This uh, recording was the evening of day one of the clinic of a, of a two-day clinic I love doing solo interviews, um, but I really love a live audience where everyone can be involved and great questions are asked. It's got a different feel to it and I really enjoy it. And that is what happened here. So being October 2019, this was way before COVID. Um, so groups of as many people as you like were allowed in one place at one time. And it's hard to remember that kind of time, but it happened. It happened because I've I've got the recording that it happened and the amazing memories. Um, I really loved the group that came along to this clinic. Um, it was a place of such great conversation, and I mean real conversation and real learning. It was amazing. And I'm so glad to be able to share a part of that with you today with this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Anna Blake, uh, you may want to listen to the first interview I did with her back in ep episode 22 of the podcast. Um, so you might want to listen to that first if you haven't already, um, but you'll get a great idea of who and what Anna is by this. And we go in depth, not just with horses. We talk about um, women and the patriarchy and horses, and it's quite a deep conversation um, because when you spend enough time with Anna, you can get into some really great things. So I was able to really um, go a bit deeper with her. Um, after spending time with her in person. So I really hope you enjoy this as much as we all did and as much as I did. Here is the wonderful Anna Blake. Anna Blake, I cannot believe it. We're sitting in a chair opposite each other in Australia. Welcome. <laughs> I am in this half of the planet where the stars that are around the moon are the wrong stars. <laughs> I can't say it any other way. This whole Southern Cross thing, we don't have that where I live. And anyone in southeast Queensland can actually thank Anna Blake for breaking the drought. Um, we've had hot weather for such a long time. I've been calling in the rain for such a long time and it just happened to come on the two days of our clinic. So thank you for that. And, you know, it cleans the air, it readjusts horses' attitudes. I'm good with it. Absolutely. So we are actually uh, at the end of day one of the clinic here in southeast Queensland. And um, so we've had a full day of horses and we're actually here with all the clinic participants, which is fantastic. So the podcast is a little bit different today. Um, I'm going to talk to Anna a little and then we are absolutely going to have the clinic participants ask the questions because I think it's a lot more fun that way. So first of all, Anna, I just wanted to check in with you about your new book because I know it's been recently released. Tell me a little bit about it, please. Um. I describe it as, uh, so one of my previous books is called Relaxed and Forward, Relationship Advice for Your Horse. And so this one is entitled Going Steady, More Relationship Advice for Your Horse. It's a little, um, you know, it's the next step beyond. And um, it is an odd style of writing. That it's filled with essays, and they're short. Uh, I guess, you know, I'm tired. I've been on my feet all day, so I'm just going to tell you the truth. Some people want to make a coffee table book that would be in everybody's living room. And it is my goal that this book be a bathroom book that would be in the bathroom of every barn because the essays are just about that long to read. They just take four or five minutes, 
And, you know, it would be such a boost before your ride to both go to the bathroom, because you should always go to the bathroom before you get in the car, and then read just a little bit, and that's my goal. You could read it in bed at night, too. It's short enough that you wouldn't fall asleep. <laughs> and how do you come across these stories? When do, do you write one every day? Do they happen while you're in the saddle or out training? Um, I'm like everybody else. My best ideas come to me while I'm mucking. And um, sometimes, you know, here's what I want to say. I'm an affirmative trainer, and I get as mad as anybody else does. So then I start writing about it, and I rant, and I scream, and I get mad, and then I put more positive words in it, and then I edit it for a few more hours. So some of the blogs come from uh, me trying to rearrange things in the world that I um, make me unhappy in the training world. Um, this book, Going Steady, is dedicated uh, to the horses I've met while traveling. In other words, your horse is here today. Uh, the biggest gift I've had in my life since the book started uh, to sell is that I get invited places that I wouldn't get to go otherwise. So I leave Colorado, and I come down here to Australia, and I get to meet these horses. And um, the, the book is dedicated to them, but a lot of times what I write is a response to a lesson I've had. Sometimes it's a horse that I just can't get out of my head and I want to write about it so that we would understand a horse like that more. Um, I always write. So uh, one day a week I post a poem, and one day a week I post a blog, and then every year or two a book comes out too. And um, I think more than anything, I do it because um, I think those horses' voices should be heard. And I would like us, uh, you know, to do a better job for our horses, which is what you guys are doing here. You're just here because you want better for your horses. That's what we all want. Do you see any difference in horses as you travel the world? Oh, I really wish you hadn't answer, asked that question. <laughs> <clears throat> yes, I do. Uh, the first time I came south of the equator, I stayed at somebody's house uh, who was one of my readers, and she said, you know, just come here and stay for a day, and I'll get you to the clinic. And the first thing I did was race down to her barn. And uh, after your day here today, this shouldn't come as a surprise to you, there's a mare. And I walk down to the barn, and I stand about 10 feet away. And I exhale, and she turns her head and looks at me. And I exhale again. And she takes a step, and she walks over to me, and she sniffs me. And then she gives a little uh, release of her pole, a little shake of her mane, and exhales and goes back to the barn. And I said, this is great. I'm home. I know these horses. They speak the same language. I think what you're asking me, though, is if there are some countries where the horses seem different than other countries. Yeah, um, I have to say, I feel like 
The horses in Scotland have a different feel about them. They're mainly ponies, and they trek. I mean, everybody treks. In Scotland, they have the right to roam. They can go anywhere they want, and they do. And so these horses have a lot of that experience. And their ponies, pony crosses, they're tough, they're strong, they're smart, um, they're great. Some places, horses live in more confinement than other places. You can count on that confinement impacting the horses. And so if I'm in a community, and this could be in any country, where uh, horses are kept in a more controlled environment, then I'll notice that. One of the things that I notice about Australia and New Zealand is that you're forever putting rugs on your horses. I got to tell you, I don't do it unless they're old, unless there's a special condition. And what temperatures ranges do you have at home? Um, Last night, we were at 11 degrees. So in my world, 32 degrees is freezing. So that's somewhere below zero for you. They had plenty to eat and they were in shelter. So I didn't rug them. What I notice is that you guys don't always have shelters. And so that creates a reason to rug that's different. Um, If my horses can get out of that 40 mile an hour wind, well, then there's no weather. If a horse doesn't have that kind of shelter, might be able to get to a tree. But, you know, we had a downpour of rain today. And, you know, they stood out in it. And I want to say, I think that that creates a level of environmental familiarity and calm, not necessarily calmness because, you know, they can feel it for sure. Um, I just want to say that it's a little more natural and I like to have, I feel like horses that are kept in that environment are just a little more sane. So the more we baby our horses in by them, uh, the cutest uh, uh, gadgets for this and that. I think we would do them more good if they had more turnout, if they had hay 24-7, if they had friends that they could actually socialize with as opposed to seeing them across an aisle through bars. And so I tend to really like the way horses are managed down here. I think that they're really sane. Um You know, I grew up having a lot of respect for New Zealand and Australia because you guys have always competed really well internationally, which would be the only way I would know, right? I mean, having not come here. And so I think the horses here are particularly sane. I've never been to Germany. I know that in some European countries, space is such an issue that turnout gets to be a real issue. And, and I know that that has to be stressful for a horse. Okay. Now I'm going to ask the wonderful participants today to ask their questions. She's cutting this part out. You're fine. <laughs> What's your one word that you would give to someone to basically explain what you do? Is it time? Is it space? What is it? 
Just one? Wow. This will be interesting, Anna Blake, in one word. Inconceivable. <laughs> My one word would be yes. Yes. Why? Why yes? <laughs> now I want more you than one word. You told me one word. I know, and I get your one word. I've I've had the liberty and the the you know the wonderful opportunity to spend two days with you now and another day tomorrow. So I understand you. Yes, I would we're say, on a podcast. I would say yes in space. What I want to say is that no is a word that gives no information. I can say no 50 times in a row, and it educates nothing. And traditionally, we have trained horses through doing corrections. So if I had four words, I would say less correction, more direction. When I say yes, the horse has an affirmative response to everything he does that builds confidence, that creates uh, uh, a mentality in the horse of curiosity. If I can get a horse to be curious, then I am literally letting him live in his parasympathetic system. I am never going to shove him into a sympathetic fight or fight um, system. I'm just going to say yes and we'll have challenges, but the answer is always going to be yes. If I don't get the answer that I want, I'll still say yes, and then I'll ask a different question, trying to get closer to the answer that I want. What happens if you don't get an answer, no matter how many times you ask? Well, if I ask a whole bunch of times... I won't get an answer because I probably would have interrupted the horse trying to give me the answer. So let's say um, I am just greeting a horse and I'm just going to, to kind of ask permission to do something. Whatever that something is, doesn't matter right now. I'm going to ask for his eye and how I'm going to do that is I'm going to exhale and then lightly look at his eye expecting him to turn his head, ultimately arc his head towards me. And so I'll exhale and I'll look at his eye and maybe he'll give me an ear. So that's the right answer. Yes. Good job giving me an ear. Yes. I'm going to say yes because he thought about it. I'm going to say yes because he gave me a response. And then I'm going to ask in a slightly different way or maybe even the same way. Maybe his first answer was timid, and so if I hadn't said yes, he wouldn't have the confidence to give me a more full answer. Maybe I say yes to the ear, and then he blinks his eye. Maybe he arcs his entire head towards me. I'm just going to keep the conversation going. No stops the conversation. Yes means we're just negotiating. And what I've learned over these two days is no is simply cutting a horse off. So if a horse comes to bring its head towards you as a calming signal and you um, pat that head or push that head away, that's actually a no. Yeah, I, I mean, and I guess the way I would say it in human terms, not that horses have these terms, but... Um, if the horse reaches his nose out to me, he's just greeting me. 
That's all. If I touch him, well, then I'm kind of telling him to be quiet. And by that, I mean you and I uh, could get really excited and have a conversation where we're kind of laughing over each other and talking over each other and everybody's expressing ideas. And it's not rudely interrupting each other. We're just all sharing. We can do that. We could, the example I use is give a hug. We could share a hug, both give and receive simultaneously. Horses stop talking when we interrupt them. They're not like us. So the reason that we actually want to be quiet and listen to a horse is to create an expanse of dead air, giving him an opportunity to bring his voice in. He's not going to interrupt us until it's too late. Does that make sense? If, if I want him to participate, well, I have to stop talking and let him. And by talking, I mean, if I touch him, that will be an interruption because his language is with his body. And how many times do almost every person in the horse world do that? You know, it's such a common thing that we all do and we just have no idea that we're doing it. That was one of my mind-blowing things that I learned today. Yeah, and here's, here's the part that's ironic to me about that. Um, Right now, there are some countries outlawing the trimming of whiskers, and there isn't anybody here that doesn't give that a big cheer. That's just great. But at the same time, we don't want to trim those whiskers because we understand that they're nerve endings, actually, that uh, they send an electrical response to the brain at 250 miles an hour, I read. Well, you know, that's a big deal. And I'm just casually bumping them on the end of my and their nose with my hand. We do it, and we don't even know we're doing it. And so, um, you know, I don't want to be t touching a horse in that vulnerable area. They're born with this hypersensitivity in their nose for a reason. That's how they find their mothers. It's how they sense the ground under their mouth because they can't see right there. So in this incredibly sensitive area, oh, let me see. How about I just stick my finger in your ear and wiggle it for a while? Oh, that would be lovely. Thank yeah, you. Would you? <laughs> and please, as you step away, I'm just going to follow you and keep my finger hooked in your ear. You know, and again, if I oppose, you'll say I'm disrespectful. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that deserves a correction, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I mean, we do this incredibly ticklish thing without thinking. And so I talk about calming signals. Frequently, calming signals can be an intersection of thoughts that kind of conflict with each other. So now I'm going to say this. Their nose is ticklish. Do you love being tickled? No. 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 And we laugh. We hate it and we laugh. It's a calming signal that we give. I don't think the horse likes it, but I think it's that same sort of in, in difficult to explain contradiction like tickling. And so, no, I don't touch a horse on his nose, but it's a little worse than that. I try not to touch him on his head. Beautiful.
Next question. Yeah. So, Anna, I understand you're a horse advocate. So what, in your opinion, can we do to be better advocates in our own community of horse people? Oh, yeah. We've got thumbs up and big nods around the room. Right question. No kidding. Um, for me, what it means to be a horse advocate is to put the horse first. I live in a in a place where a lot of people have different opinions about what that means. First and foremost, I'm going to take the best care of my horses that I can. I have never seen anyone change their way because someone called them out in, in public. Um, I don't think that works. As much as I travel around and try and teach the thing that I teach, this is a, a person-by-person thing. Um, I want to see better legislation. Yes, I do, for cruelty, but that's not even going to do it. How it works is that you guys do it, and how you do it is by living an example in front of other people. People will... (laughs) I hope you compete, and I hope you win, and I hope you have a big smile on your face, and for those people who are using... a firmer domination method that I think frightens horses, puts them in their sympathetic nervous system, and, you know, a frightened horse, they're the ones that are going to be less safe. They're going to be the ones that get injured more often. So, yeah, this is my plan. You guys all go out in the world and treat your horses with compassion and understanding. You train them affirmatively. They are beautiful, wonderful horses, and everybody looks at you and says, Wow, I want my horse to be like you. So thank you for asking me that question, but it's you guys that are going to do it. And then I want to say this one other thing. Every place I go, it's like this. It's people like you who are really changing the world. And I get a lot of excitement, a lot of passion in what I do because I really see it changing. Every place I go, I see this. And I believe that this is how it happens. We each, one of us, have one vote, and we use it really well. Beautiful. This might be similar to the previous question. Um, If horses did have a voice, in your opinion, what would they like to tell us horse people? Get out of my space. I'm not being affectionate. I have anxiety. Give me some room. Please breathe. When you breathe, I feel like I can breathe. A calming signal is a horse saying, I'm no threat to you. Could you act less threatening? Could you be less predator-like in your training methods? Could you breathe and let me know that I have done it right? Can you just say yes? Ah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're all, we're, yeah. Even though we're not horses, we get, it, it works. It we're, works. Humans it works are the best everyone. demo horses always. Mm. There's got to be more questions. Yeah, anyone? Anyone? I, I, 
Um, we've talked a lot about ulcers today. You mentioned that you had opinions on feeding horses for ulcers. Can you talk a bit on that? Yes. Um, you know, I'm going to talk kind of about management because I can't actually list any brand name supplements or anything because we tend to not have them in the same countries. So... Uh, in talking about ulcers, I believe that there is a spectrum. And so it could be that they have a sour stomach. It could be that they have ulcers. It could be that they have scars from ulcers that are still creating pain. Could be the memory of an ulcer. Could be anything. So number one, horses need I, I went through this threesome, but I'm going to say it again. They must have room to move. They must have 24-7 food in front of them, and they must have company. And, yeah, some horses don't get along with others. We're, we're going to work that out. Um, I soak pellets to feed my horses. I use alfalfa pellets. I think you call that lucent. But uh, hay pellets or any other kind of pellet would work. The reason... I want to feed a pellet is because bad gut bacteria tends to live on larger particles, like 10 millimeter particles. So that's the size particle you might see in their manure. Good gut bacteria lives on tiny particles, 0.5 millimeter particles. So I feed them soaked pellets because they cannot masticate with their teeth to that tiny size always. So I'm going to feed a mush that just keeps them going. Um, if I need something to soothe their stomach, I lean towards a, maybe some bentonite clay products of different sorts. Um, horses in the wild will go to clay and eat it to settle their stomachs. It works. Um, I'm going to, if I know I'm going to be moving a horse, well, then I'm going to give them a little more in support ahead of time. If I know I'm coming to a clinic, I'm going to give them a little more help going forward. There are a couple ways to go with that. They kind of come into two classifications. The first one would be an antacid. Uh, the human generic on that in the U.S. is called ranitidine. And so that's an antacid. It just dilutes acid. And so um, that's going to be something I might consider with some horses doing before every ride just to help them. Um, the big daddy, the one in the U.S. that is prescribed for horses with ulcers is omeprazole. In the U.S., it's called ulcer guard. We feed it in a tube. For a lot of horses, getting paced in a tube is a little stressful. So I guess now is when I'm going to mention Abler. A-B-L-E-R. It lives here in Australia. I'm not saying that I order it from the United States exactly. I'm just saying that it comes in these little blue beads, and so you could put it on wet alfalfa mush, and they would just eat it, and it wouldn't be the stress of administering it, and we're the ones that have stress about administering it. It costs a lot, and it's in a tube. So I'm, you know, I'm probably going to have a vet look at my horse, but I even have questions about that. 
In order to be scoped, they have to not eat for 12 hours. That's about how much time it takes to start an ulcer. So if a horse has anxiety around his muzzle, that's the end of his gastric system, right? That's where the food comes in. Or maybe he's food aggressive. Or maybe he chews his tongue. Um, If I see a lot of anxiety around food, I guess I'm going to pop some antacid uh, we have something called UGARD that's a really inexpensive thing. I know you guys have some supplement probably like that. When I started dealing with ulcers, um, you know, 35 years ago, there weren't many products out, and now there are a ton of them. You want to stop with the sweet feed. Just don't feed it. It's like feeding candy corn. Um, I want to keep my horse as naturally as I can. And those are the best things I can do. But I'm, and now I'm going to say this because, you know, I'm not a vet and I have no business talking about that. It's not my business. My business is training horses. And if training horses can create ulcers, then training horses differently could certainly alleviate ulcers. Can't heal them But you know, if you say yes to your horse, if you stop throwing him in his sympathetic nervous system, if you work him in his parasympathetic nervous system where he feels relaxed, well, then I can give him little tiny challenges. I can let him resolve that challenge himself, not answer it for him, let him figure it out. And then he grows a little confidence. The world is a stressful place. I cannot make the world less stressful, and I will not walk on eggshells around horses. The one thing I can give them is a little more confidence. It doesn't cure ulcers. It just makes the world a safer place. There's less stress. That last bit that you did just said then, is that also if you're dealing with the memory of ulcers? There's no actual ulcers, but it's just that memory? Like, how do you tackle that? Oh, gosh. You know, again, I have this really fortunate life where I get to travel a lot and talk to a lot of people. So I do this kind of, I have several questions that I'm curious about that I ask professionals when I meet them. So when I meet vets in particular, but I'll also ask body workers and I'll also ask farriers. I will say, horses have memory. They don't have the same frontal lobe that we do. Their amygdala uh, contains memory and emotion. Boy, those are two hot things to have next to each other in one place. And that's the part of their brain where the flight response is also set off. So they have memory. Can they, the question I ask vets, can they tell the difference between having an ulcer right now or being in a similar situation to one that they have felt pain in before that creates anxiety and kind of, I guess, sparks the memory of an ulcer that is very real to them? Because here's what I know. Us humans, we have anxiety attacks, right? We may not know why. We may just have an anxiety attack and then later make a connection that, uh, you know, you were in a hallway and maybe back when you were in college, somebody grabbed you in a hallway, but you haven't thought about it for 40 years, but now you have this anxiety attack. 
I just wonder if horses do something similar, not in a conscious brain way, but in, you know, a self-aware way, but in a, a just a feeling sense. So I think I've probably asked 30 or 40 vets now. I've been asking this question for years because I've been dealing with ulcers for years. The vets tell me they really don't know that they can tell the difference. Probably not. But here's the thing. Let's say you're chronically lame. Uh, It's going to impact how you walk. It's going to impact how you feel about hurrying. It's going to impact how secure you feel. If you're in a dangerous place, you might not be able to get away, run. I can't outrun people anymore since my foot surgery. So again, now do I just have this chronic anxiety about the pain in my stomach? They say, yes, I agree. So sometimes it seems on this continuum of gastric discomfort, it seems like we can never heal it. Now, I want to throw in this one other thing, and this is anecdotal. You can just blow me off if you want. It's fine. One of my clients is a doctor. She says that when people take omeprazole and then go off of it, sometimes the stomach acid comes back twice as bad. So it seems like the second it's healed, it comes back. She says that happens in humans. I feel like I've seen that happen with horses. Maybe I'm anthropomorphizing. Maybe I am. I don't know. I just keep listening, and if the horse tells me he's in pain, I'm going to believe him. And I think this ulcer thing, once it starts, it goes on and on forever. And so when is it that horses statistically get their first ulcer? Anybody know what percentage of horses get ulcers after being weaned? What did you say? Yeah. Yeah, so most of them start having ulcers. And yeah, yeah. 98% of foals, uh, a, a New Zealand study says 98% of foals get ulcers during weaning. Okay. Okay. Can we just not get make it worse? Can we recognize that ulcers aren't an affliction that is odd or something to be embarrassed about? Can we get behind taking care of ulcers in the same way we care for their feet? That would be good. Instead of denial, maybe we could help them. And so is ulcers something that you've seen as you've traveled the world? It's not a country-by-country, feed-by-feed kind of thing, is it? Do a lot of horses have ulcers around the world? Yeah, and and I'm going to say, again, they have a pretty fragile digestive system. They're born that way. So do ulcers who live in stalls, or horses that live in stalls, have more ulcers than horses out in the pasture? Well, Absolutely. Do wild horses have ulcers during a drought? Yes. Of course they do. I mean, I don't think it's a domestic horse thing or a wild horse thing. I think it is a digestive issue thing. They have this digestive system um, that is impacted by so many environmental causes, so many um, you know, human causes. 
I don't see it worse one place or another. I see the way we keep them <clears throat> to be the hugest factor in the cause. If we can... <clears throat> If we can continue to look at the way we keep them and never quite be satisfied. So I want to tell you, I'm not real happy with how my horses are kept. And I own the farm they're on. I continually look. Can I get better slow feed hay bags? Um, can I mitigate the f anything I can mitigate? I'm always going to look to improve. Yep. Absolutely. Come on up. Bring Jack with you. Jack, do you have a question? <laughs> um, I just wanted to know, my mare is a cord horse Arab and she's a busy girl. Um, and I found when I've tried to do some breathing with her, she seems to, like she'll, um, like at Liberty in the Paddock, march up to me and see what's happening and are we doing anything and if I just try and stand there and breathe to her she's like it seems to me that she's like oh this and then wanders off back to the feed bin has a sniff comes back are we going to do something now and I'm breathing she's like oh this is boring and goes away um do you find that with horses that tend to be a bit busier you have problems or do I just keep breathing until she <laughs> settles down and <laughs> this is this is such a great question. Um, first, I want to tell you, I love that cross, Quarter Horse Arabs. I love that cross. And yeah, they like to think. They like a lot of activity. They're not quitters, and they're not stoic. So I think she's trying too hard. So yeah, I'm going to stand there and breathe, and she's going to say, I have no patience for your breathing. Could you just pick up the pace? Well, no, because this is anxiety. I want her to be less worried. So, yeah, I'm going to stand there and breathe, and she's going to say, I can't put up with your breathing a moment longer. I'm going to go over here, and I'm going to eat. One more time, eating is a calming signal. She's not eating because she's hungry. She's stretching her neck. She's working her jaw. She's relaxing. And then she comes back and says, oh, are you still breathing? <laughs> yes, I am. And now I'm breathing even deeper. Thank you for asking. And she'll maybe stay another second. And then she thinks she has to rescue the world because, you know, that's the job of a mare. She has to control the universe. And if you're just going to stand here and breathe, someone has to run around and check things out. And so this mare, who continues to appear to be distracted, she can't be distracted. She can't. She has to control the universe, and so she knows you're there breathing. And then pretty soon, you become the safe place. And then pretty soon, the world becomes less challenging because she has a safe place. So do I think you're going to convince 
an Arabian quarter horse to a, a favorite breed of mine, if you think that you're just going to exhale once and she's a mare is going to give it up, you're wrong. You will breathe until you convince her that you're reliable. And when you're reliable, she'll behave differently. But she's just going off and doing a calming signal. That's not personal. She's just saying, you know, I might spontaneously combust if I stand still right now. So I'm just going to walk it out, chew a little bit, and then I'll come back. So I don't see her as leaving. I don't see her as quitting. I see her as trying too hard. And so she... I need her to know she's okay, and she's plenty, just as she is, and she doesn't have to try that hard, that she could just rest and stand with me. What a gift. Anna, what I found with my horse this afternoon was that once she was out there, she sort of got the idea and then charged around and trailing me like a kite. Yes, leading with me trailing behind like a kite. Um, she sort of seemed to get herself quite upset with that, but she kept on powering on. From time to time, she stopped, turned around to me, touched my hands as if she wanted me to take over. Um, and I didn't know what to do. I just kept on doing what we were doing. She did it about four times. Stopped, turned around to me, touched my hands. Um, and I wanted to know what you thought I should have done or what she was trying to say. So um, I'm going to catch everybody listening up. We were leading from behind, which is the most human, crazy-making exercise you could ever do. So the exercise is that your horse takes you for a walk. And then the other thing that I want to say, because it's my job to look at the big picture, we had had this aforementioned downpour of rain on dry ground. I could smell the grass. My gosh, so could she. The idea is that she's going to take you for a walk. And then there's just this one other thing. Right next to the pen she's in, there are four horses galloping across the hillside, back and forth and back and forth. Okay, that sets the scene, I think, a little more fairly. She did, she did this before the horses were galloping. Ah, she was doing this before. So the idea of leading from behind is to give a horse a little autonomy, a feeling of freedom, of choice. They're taking you for a walk rather than us micromanaging um, them. So if she's walking off and dragging you around, I understand that some people would see that as bad behavior. What I'm going to say is she's, she can't quite believe it. She's testing it. She's asking you, you know, you know prove to me you're not going to pull on my face and you're running desperately behind her, trying to not pull on her face. And okay, her legs are a little bit longer than yours, and she can really cover ground a little better than you. But some of the horses we saw today were shut down and could not take that first step. They need us to prove to them that we really will let them have confidence. She moved forward, but not with confidence. So it's kind of the 
opposite reaction in the same thing. Now, when she turns around and sniffs you, I do not think she's looking to you for leadership. I just don't. She's a mare. I just don't. But she is trying to figure out what this exercise is. And she's got some anxiety, and anxiety is pretty close to curiosity. She can't believe that she has not been corrected for doing this. And so she says, she just turns around to check in. Um, again, I'm not going to say that I know what she thinks, but what I love is that she's thinking. What I love is that she's not answering by rote and neither are you. You two are out there in the world, um, not even quite knowing what you're looking for. So that means she's curious and yeah, she covers ground. Um, I love this exercise because of what it does for us, puts us out of control. We, humans just love being out of control, said no human ever. (laughs) (laughs) There's anxious people in the room just listening to this. Well, yeah. And I mean, we have been taught since day one to get up there with their head and you make them behave. Well, we had to be the leader, Anna, remember? We are the leader. That's what was trained into us when we were younger. You are to be the dominant one. You are to be the leader. That's your job as a human with a horse. And you know what? I'm the one that stands there with a smile on my face and says yes, and I breathe. And when horses get away, they run to me because I'm the safe place. Leadership is safety. We have so had it wrong. If you believe that horses are sentient creatures, then you must give them choice if you want them to be partners. We're big at talking about partnership, but then we really don't like to give them much choice because we believe that they will choose against us. We don't trust that they want to be with us. So what I want you to hear about your mare today is that she did want you there. She turned around and checked on you. She doesn't want you to micromanage every step, and she's testing you to see if you're going to change your mind. But she didn't get away with you from you. She stayed with you and checked with you. So I'm going to call that a connection a little bigger than a lead rope. I, I thought she was great today. So following on from the leading from behind, you talked earlier today about the translation to under saddle. Obviously with my mare this afternoon, I think it was, I was fully aware that I've held her hand too much um, and I know that the issue, or I believe the issues I'm now having under saddle as I start her and move forwards are because I've held her hand too much and now I'm on top and she's unsure about what's going on and she's not confident. And you mentioned earlier today about how invaluable you've seen the leading from behind be translating to everything with the horse. So is that part of the parcel, that developing that confidence, that skill set, that letting them actually have that ability to go forwards without being micromanaged will then translate to helping her understand being ridden and confident and a willing partner? if that makes sense. So I want to say a couple of things. For the people listening to the podcast, what I want to say is um, this is a beautiful young mare. 
and she kind of would stick like glue, the two of them. They would be touching each other constantly, and it was fine. She's a beautiful mare, and uh, she's uh, very aware of her surroundings, so she's tense, and she's looking up in the distance, and that makes you feel like you need to do something because she's tense. And you managed to exhale, and one ear spun and went directly to you. That's it. That's your mare saying, I'm checking in. I'm listening to you. I'm just concerned. The more you breathe, the more she came back. Pretty soon, the leading from behind. Oh, she just had this fluid, forward, beautiful walk. She wasn't saying to you, can I take a step? I'm not sure if I can hold myself up. She was saying, I have autonomy, and I'm intelligent, and I'm now ready to be a partner. Of course, you'll have to keep up. Okay, as a mayor, you have to just take that part and parcel. She needs you to, you know, to be her equal, which can be a challenge. So she gets more confident leading from behind. Now I'm going to figure out a way in the saddle to give her the same aids that aid her on the ground. I'm going to ride with a neck ring, and I'm going to leave her face alone. I'm not going to be pulling on the reins, whether it's bit, bitless, or anything else. I'm going to really give her a chance to feel my seat, feel my legs. I'm going to ride in rhythm with her barrel. As long as I move in rhythm with her, that will be relaxing. I can breathe, which is a cue to breathe. I can exhale, which is a cue to relax. As long as I'm not distracting her with something adversive, then she's going to feel that rhythm, feel that rhythm, feel really good about walking with you, and then she has confidence. If she is punished under saddle, that's when you become the mountain lion on her back. That's when that happens. Uh, I think this, I think she's actually going to be better in the saddle because once we're out of their space, they improve. And <clears throat> as bizarre as this is, when we are sitting on a horse, we're not in their face, are we? We might be with our hands, but our body isn't. So for the horses who are better when you're in the saddle than on the ground, that's because they have anxiety about your closeness. I actually don't think that that's going to be the question. Um, I, can't, I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, you know, the thing I will say, she's a young mare. And so what good training ends up being is actually not that complicated. Um, it's not about what technique you use. It's not about whether you, what bridle you use or whether you use spurs. I mean, you can have those opinions. What good training actually is, is collecting good experiences. That's where confidence comes from. So you climb on her. Uh, you take 10 steps. It goes well. You jump down. That's one good experience right there. You walk around for five minutes and you do it again. Oh my gosh, we have two good rides in one hour. Um, I am just going to add up these tiny, tiny things because if I can get 10 good rides and nothing bad happens, 
well, then I've got that. That's a good experience. And then if I can add 10 more, I'm going with there. I am looking at the long distance and and a 50-minute ride is not going to work. And I'm going to tell you why. Neither of you can focus that long. The reason dressage tests are 8 to 10 or 12 minutes is because that's about how long we can focus. It's about how long a horse can focus. If you're going to climb on for longer than that on a young horse, you're probably going to get past that good place to stop and then just get off because it's not going to come back again. Just let it go because that's what we do. I have to stop on a good note, but it's too late. You're just going to stop so far before anything goes wrong that she's not going to have that issue. Yay. Amazing. Yay. <laughs> um, Anna, you spoke today about a beautiful Arab mare that's here, and you talked about an Arab mare that you've got and how what you had to do um, to be able to work with her. Can you speak about that again? Because I found that extraordinary. I don't own an Arabian. Oh. The, the one where you had to do the couples therapy. Oh, that was not a mare. Um, I wrote about this horse in Stable Relation, and his name was Dodger. And it's no big deal. Uh, Witez is a Polish-Arabian stallion that came out with the Lipizzaner's books have been written. And this horse was like, you know, a relative of that horse. In other words, he came from a much better family than I did. He was an Arabian. He was intelligent. He was a quick thinker. He was so smart, and he was so beautiful. And, yeah, I didn't quite measure up to that. So I'm going to say this, but it is not a joke. It is literal. I didn't feel good enough for my horse. I know that a lot of us feel that way, that we're not good enough for our horse. Well, yeah, I can tell you there were some other things going on in my life, and I didn't particularly feel good enough about that, too. But we're talking about this horse. Yes. I couldn't be good enough for him, so I literally, no kidding, found a therapist that would talk to me about my relationship with my horse. And I got to say it. I mean, I had to find a way to be the kind of confident person he used to be. And, you know, so, okay, this is back in the 90s um, when there were movie stars who were considered hot, who now may have aged, and so I'm not going to use that name that I used earlier because (laughs) this actor just turned into such a creepy guy. It will destroy the whole thing. But, you know, it was me feeling like I was dating this this guy movie star yeah this movie star and he's rich and he's famous and i mean it i stumble over my own feet and my hair looks bad it's like i stand next to him and i feel like all of you are going to judge me (laughs) well you know i had to snap out of that i needed to be who he needed me to be and he needed a full partner he didn't need somebody whiny and insecure he needed somebody who could stand next to him and do it. And so I don't think horses heal us. But I'll say this about me. I certainly wasn't going to change because my family criticized me, and I certainly wasn't going to change because some man thought I should be different. There's only about one thing I can imagine 
that I would change for. So for the people listening to the podcast, you want to know that there's some women nodding their heads right now. Yeah, I will change for my horse. Yes, I will. That's, I, I will go there. I will be who he needs me to be. So I had to lay down my puny, whiny, insecure self to be with that horse. And it was the best trade I ever made. I was the one that got the good half of that trade. Absolutely. And as a follow-on from that, um, most of the listeners for this podcast, most of the followers I have on social media, I'm not sure about your stats, I know they all um, range between you know, the ages of, of 40 to 65 and they're mostly like 99% women. Um, and we've you've talked a little bit today about training like a girl and um, I just want you to add on after you've spoken about that with what you became for your horse about what it means to train like a girl and why are we the leaders in this new age of horsemanship? do you think? So um, I will avoid the bluntness with which you and I have spoken of this privately. It's probably good for the podcast. I have always been, first off, I've never worked with any trainers who were unduly aggressive with horses. The trainers who I worked with coming up were that kind of trainer. But I just decided I was not going to pick a fight with a horse. And to tell you the truth, it was more fear than anything. I knew I wouldn't win. And so I train like a girl. I don't pick fights. I don't make my horse respect me. I hear the criticism. I hear it from people when I was an amateur. And I certainly hear it from trainers now. Here's what's great about training like a girl. Science has finally stepped up and said, you know what? A scared horse can't learn. If a horse is in their sympathetic nervous system, they can't learn. So guess what? Training like a girl now has science behind it. I could not be happier. I could not be happier, not because I get to say I told you so, but because we have all been taught that we have to, in some sense, get aggressive with these horses and show them who's boss. You make them respect you. Well, you know what? A frightened horse will never be reliable. That kind of training goes against equine brain science. This isn't training like a girl. This is being smart. So I feel really good about this. It's like having a nice I told you so at a certain point in my life. But I also want to say, for those of us, of women of a certain age, we think about who we were when we were younger and we think we're falling short. We say, I used to be able to do this and now I can't. And it makes us feel like we are less. And that is so wrong. We are at a better point in our lives now to be partners with horses than we've ever been. Maybe you had the courage to ride a frightened horse when you were younger. You will not get points from me for scaring horses. 
it's not the way to do it. They're flight animals. Why would I pour gasoline on that fire? Instead, could I give a calming signal to a horse? Is there a way that as a woman of a certain age, that was a nice exhale. <laughs> Is there a way that I, as a woman of a certain age, could bring confidence to a horse in a way that I couldn't have understood when I was younger? Is there a way at this time in my life that I can be a leader for a horse where the horse comes to me by choice because he feels safe? We're forever comparing humans to herd, horses in herd behavior, and generally, I'm going to say that's not true. But here's the thing. We look at that herd, and we think with, that the horse with the most anxiety is the alpha horse. That's not true. How you can tell who your alpha horse is is they pass away, and then the rest of the herd comes apart. We are the ones. We stand around and we stick our bellies out and we breathe. We do less because less is more. But I mean it. We're really starting to figure out what that is. Horses are drawn to us because of a sense of safety, because we are able to express to them that we are not predators, that they are safe with us. And women can identify with the feeling of being preyed upon. Because as women, when you do the exercise that they bring into classrooms now, when you say to men, you know, how many times a day do you have to be aware of your safety and feel like you're being preyed upon? And it's, it's very, very rare. And women can just write lists and lists and lists on the board. It's like any time I'm walking by myself, any time I'm at night, when I'm in this, you know, and if I go out at night, then I have to think about this. And there, there's so many ways. So... You know, that's why women are really leading the way because they can empathize so much with horses. And that's the, and everything she said is how mares feel. That's why they're so environmentally charged. So are we. Yeah. We understand what it's like to be predators because we were born that way. We are. Just, we are. You can say you love horses. Your eyes are close together. You're a predator. But we also understand what it means to feel like prey. Yeah, we were taught when we were kids to not go out of the house after dark, whatever. I just want to say that it gives us a depth of understanding and compassion for horses that's really natural within us. It, it is the thing that we would have been called on as weakness but that's not, how, that's not how horses see it. It's not how any horse sees it. Geldings? Oh, yeah. Please. You know, they're in. It's not, it doesn't have to do with um, what kind of horse it is. It comes, has to do with can we listen? Um, can we get our egos out of the way? Can we get our history out of the way? Can we let their history get out of the way? And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, it just kind of sounds inane to say it, but give peace a chance. You, you know, can we just let it be okay? Can we stop with all of the aggravation and anxiety, dominating and submitting? And can we just be partners? That's what we always say. We want a partnership. Well, 
that implies, more than implies, it demands that horses have choice. And it's also, um, I'm going to take that back a little bit to when you were asked about how to be a great horse advocate. It's we as, as women especially, we go and take our horses to clinics and we let them be treated in ways that we know is not okay and that we know is predatory and we need to be able to speak up and say that's not okay for me and my horse and have confidence in that because you know yourself as a woman when something is being preyed upon and you don't want that for your horse and it feels uncomfortable but as we've been taught as women as a society for such a long time you just sometimes let it happen you know you just sometimes go oh well this is happening maybe I'm whinging maybe I'm you know this is just how it is and we just have to put up with it but it's and not we're, true and anymore. we're taught to be polite we're taught to be polite damn it so you know I want to I want to I want to say a little bit about this um, I have a donkey, Edgar Riceboro, and Edgar had some uh, rough farrier work before I got him. And I have a vet that's a little old school. Now, trust me, I'm not as shy as most women about speaking up, but I cannot, I cannot control this vet. So I'm a really good trainer, and he manhandles my donkey a little, but initially, I thought, you know what? I'm a good trainer. I trust the relationship I have with this donkey, and I can bring him back. And what Edgar would like you all to know is that that will work once or twice. But nobody, he will have you know, nobody is that good as to erase anxiety that to him feels, um, you know, like an attack. So, yeah, I think it is the hardest thing in the world for us to be rude, to say the thing that's true in the moment that it's true. So here's how I do that. It was the first thing I said today. I said, I'm a horse advocate. That means I put horses first. What that does is just warn you (laughs) that something could happen later. And I might feel compelled to say, you may not hold my lead rope. You may not do that to my horse. I just think it is the hardest thing, especially in a clinic situation. Um, Because, you know, you've come for some help, some support, some information. And if it's not going the way you think it should go, you know, I do this at clinics all the time, and it makes people laugh, but I'm not kidding. If I see a horse, um, usually it's selfishness on my part. I would just like to meet the horse. And so I might say to you, may I have your lead rope? And boy, everybody gets a smile on their face. Anna's going to use their horse as a demo horse. So they hand me the rope, and the first thing I say is, don't ever hand your horse over to a clinician. I learned to say this because of emails I got. We need to be so careful. And here's the deal. Here's what's hard about it. It's hard to say no, but if you don't understand the concept of what's going on, you could have it wrong. Yeah. And so, you know, that's the deal. I mean, you have to give that clinician the benefit of the doubt. And I might give them the benefit of the doubt a couple of times. I won't give it three times. If I feel like it's going too far, I'll come back. Um, 
you know, this is my line of work, and I, I don't want to make people paranoid about clinicians. It's just that people tell me they're paranoid about clinicians. I can tell you for some of us, you guys feel the pressure of um, handling your horse when everybody else is looking at you. I think sometimes clinicians feel the pressure of needing to be special, needing to evoke a perfect answer from a horse. And so I think, I think sometimes for some clinicians, trainers, or even other horse people, I think that that gets to be a thing. And so for me, I raise it to a fine art. I stand there and I breathe. And if I feel like everybody's getting impatient about it, then I draw their attention to the fact that I'm standing there and breathing. Because the challenge here is that we all know that less is more, but nobody ever demonstrates it. We all are, know that we should be patient, but nobody demonstrates patience, which looks like me standing around and you've paid money to be here and watch me stand next to your horse and breathe. Well, if it didn't work every single time, maybe you'd get mad. <clears throat> I think if you feel like the only way you get your money's worth is if your horse has a huge, violent response to something, well, then I'm going to say one more time uh, about uh, this mare that we were talking about riding. She came in like static electricity on hooves. And when we had finished, she was calmly grazing with a soft pole and looking around. And I saw that happen with each one of the horses that we worked with today. Our goal is that when we are done, the horse is better than when we started. That happened every single time today, and all you did was stand around and breathe. You know, we have to really see the response we get and celebrate it because we get defensive. We get just, you know, that's what training like a girl does. It, it makes us defensive. Yeah. Yeah, it's brilliant. Any other questions? Okay, I've got one last question from Belinda, who couldn't be here today. And she's thinking that you've no doubt seen a lot of changes in the horse world over the years and she's curious to know what change or changes you've been happiest to see. I think the thing that I'm the happiest about, um, we all say horses are so intuitive. They read our minds. They can tell when we're upset. They can tell all of these things. The thing that I'm the happiest about is that I really believe that the horse world is starting to take a turn from what it is horses give us and the value we put on that to putting a value on the things that we can give horses. Um, I am simply alive today because of horses who showed me grace when, frankly, I didn't deserve it. The only reason to get better for horses is for everything they give us. And I am thrilled to see the world change in such a way that we are profoundly concerned about 
pain that our horses have, that we uh, really want to be that sort of leader that gives our horses support rather than that sort of leader that shuts our horses down. I want us to stop worrying about whether or not our horses love us. I have gotten so much in my life from horses. It would be nothing but selfish of me to ask for one more thing. Having them in my life is blessing enough, and that is the thing I see more than anything. People have horses, barns filled with old lame horses that they don't have the sense to do anything but buy them more hay and get them everything they need. The thing I am the most excited about is that we have started to return the gift that horses have given us for centuries. What a beautiful note to end it on. Anna Blake, thank you so much for coming back again. It's great thank to meet you. you. I'm on a mission to create a community of conscious horse people so that their horses all over the world can live a better life. This is a big mission with a wonderful message and it needs your help. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to join me on my mission of making the world a better place for horses by bringing consciousness to the horse world, please do one of the following. You can go over to our Patreon page at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash come along for the ride podcast and become a subscriber to the show. As Patreon members, you're helping this podcast become a weekly show once again. And remember, any funds that go over the cost of production will go into new and exciting projects that you as a subscriber will have a say in. You could also pop over to EdenRiverEquestrian.com and see our range of sustainable, ethical and organic gear for both horses and humans. Remember, 50% of profits go back to helping horses all over the world live a better life. Or you could leave us a review and tell the world why you love this podcast. You can do that through whichever app it is that you're listening now. The best place to do it is through iTunes. They give juice that gives other bits juice that boosts the podcast up and basically that gets it into more people's ears so that we can make a real difference in the world. You could also share this podcast with a friend, tell everyone you know about it and guide them to an episode that you think they'd really enjoy. All the links you need can be found in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and I'll catch you next time on Come Along for the Ride.